Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Hi, Jen. Hi, Mayor. How's it going? It's going good. I have a little thunderstorm coming. What about you? Ooh, me too. It's a summer afternoon in Florida, so I have a thunderstorm and a barky dog. Yeah, we hear Annie having a little anxiety right now. That's okay. Annie is Jen's dog. I'm sure some of our listeners have dogs with anxiety too. Yeah, we do too. We have one here too, and and she's out in the other room right now, so hopefully we won't hear her as well. Um, but you know, if we do, it's, it's okay, everybody, we can hear dogs. Dogs are a part of our lives. Um, so what else is going on, Jen? Well, some big, big things are happening. Um, excited about moving. My brother is excited. Um, my, my son is moving. Just so many exciting things happening in my life. And so, you know, we've told our listeners before, we're going to take the month of July off from producing new podcasts, although you'll still be able to access all of our previous shows, I think there'll be 50 in total um, while we're taking our break. But um, I'm super excited about what is coming for our shows this fall. Are we allowed to tell our listeners? Yeah, I think you should. So this fall, we're going to be debuting um, storytelling. And we want to hear from caregivers, what's your story? We're looking for our listeners to tell us a story about their caregiving life. We want this caregiver life to be your caregiver life. So we're looking forward to your sharing stories with us, either via email, thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com, or by sending us a private message on social media. And we'd also love for you to record a voice memo that we can share in one of our episodes. So we'll give you some more details at the end of the show today, but I'm super excited about that. Oh, I am too. I'm really looking forward to hearing the voices of our caregivers. There There are so many of them. Um, millions and millions of caregivers across the country from all walks of life. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing um, who they're caring for and how it's going for them. Me too. And I imagine there'll be a lot of things I can relate to and that we'll learn a lot from, from our caregiver stories as well. So I hope everyone tunes in and um, also be sure and rate us on whatever uh, platform where you get your social, social media, where you get your podcasts. If you can give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And we love reviews too. So please be sure and leave us one there. And that will help other caregivers find our show. Outstanding. And guess what? I have other news. What is it? We have a guest today. Yay! (laughs) We love having guests. So um, I'm going to pronounce your name, and you're going to tell me if I got it right. Sogoina? Perfect. Okay, great. Tansman. Perfect. Okay, great. So Sogoina is a speech-language pathologist. She is an author and a speaker. She's a certified life coach and a master practitioner of NLP. And your latest book is After Stroke for Caregivers and Survivors, The Holistic Guide to Getting Your Life Back. And I took a peek today and your book is at 
89,821 in Amazon, which is such a great ranking. Congratulations. Yay! Thank you. It's been in the 50,000s and it's, it's run the bestseller several times. And my most epic shot was when it was shown above um, Dr. Jill Balti Taylor's book, A Stroke of Insight, as a bestseller. So I, being in that company was epic. <laughs> we love to celebrate authors. Um, Mare is an author and I'm an author too. And we just love it when other authors have such great success and are so well read. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We did leave out, I think, one really important word in the book title, and that was hope after stroke. That's a really key ingredient of this book. What did I leave out? That's hope so after oh, stroke. Hope. Hope after stroke. I'm sorry. That's that's okay. That. That's absolutely okay. But I, I did want to point that out because I, I like to say hope is the fuel of recovery and action is the vehicle. Yes, I, I love that. And I, I'm sorry that I left that out. That's funny. I did a copy and paste the whole title. I must have left hope out. <laughs> we can't <laughs> ever leave hope out. <laughs> But it was like when I was like folding laundry and doing things. (laughs) I did have um, my very first question, which is just a very practical question, is what is a master practitioner of NLP? Can you explain that? Sure. Neuro-linguistic programming. So this is a, a, a thing that was developed really in the 70s about how we communicate, really. And the field of neurolinguistic programming was based on the work of many amazing practitioners, Virginia Satir, um, Milton Erickson, and they looked at how we are able to encode information auditorily, visually, kinesthetically, and, and how we can hold those images and manipulate those images to have improved outcomes in the way we think and in the way that we act, the way that we store our memories and how we can change those to be much more resourceful people. Wow, that's pretty intense and, and actually really exciting. It is. And the language part too is part of it. So it's neuro for the brain, right? The neuro, the, the neurology. And the linguistics, um, I actually talk about um, changing your language, shaping your life. And that's one of the chapters in the books too, because, you know, so for example, I have often heard uh, in rehab with stroke, for example, they're talking about your bad side. Now that just psychologically is a really bad thing to think about because you're also, you're automatically associating something bad with something you want to neglect and something that you want to dissociate yourself from. And um, I like to refer to the the stroke-affected side, the SAS side, right? But I like to call it the sassy side. And when you think about your sassy side, right, don't you want to get curious about, like, what what would my sassy side do? So it's that mind shift in language that can be transformational in outcomes. Wow, and I can see where that, uh, the word hope is so critical, to what you do when you put everything together, all of your skill sets, all of your education, your experience, where hope is such an important piece of what you're doing. It really is. And I want to use a little short story to illustrate that. It was kind of interesting. 
I went, I, I will never forget this. I went with a patient and his wife. The patient was, um, had a terrible stroke. He was pretty young. He was in his low 40s. And his stroke left him blind, left him completely incapable of understanding language. He went from a period of being mute to then suddenly speaking in gibberish. And I met him maybe three weeks post-hospitalization. So I went with his wife and him to see the doctor. And the wife said to the doctor, you know, how's my husband going to do? You know, like, what do you think? And the doctor said, well, he's had a really bad stroke and I don't want to give you any false hope, but I don't know really what his recovery is going to be like. And she said, well, then why are we going through all these therapies? And afterwards I said to her, you know what? There is no such thing as false hope. There is hope and there are facts, but false hope is a ridiculous concept. Hope is hope. And, and doctors have facts. They have today facts, but they don't have forever facts. And I cannot tell you how many people I've seen where the doctor has looked at the reports, and this is not to bash doctors, they're seeing them at that moment and they say, the facts that I have right now tell me that there's not going to be any progress, that you should sell your things, prepare for long-term care, and give it up. And thousands of people, thousands of people, so far outperform what those prognoses are. Wow, that's huge. Because it's really, and I think that was really um, one of the questions that I wanted to, to ask you was, you know, how much can people recover? You know, what, you know, really how much is their effort in putting into their recovery part of their, the ultimate place where, where they get to the best that they can be? It's a really interesting question. And because you're working with the brain, of course, there's definitely not a one size fits all, right? Mm -hmm. And there are many, many factors um, that can influence the outcome. And I, I, I wrote a book in here called The Secret Sauce of Recovering. And it's a chapter early that looks at what I call the non-evidence-based, the you know, purely anecdotal, uh, but the five components that I see most often predictors of success in recovery. And it's not always, we think logically that it's going to be the less severe the symptoms or less severe the damage, the better the outcome. And that's not always true. I have seen people with devastating diagnoses far outperform some of those who have mild problems, but that just can't seem to get over what they perceive as loss or change. So one of the first in the secret sauce of recovering First and foremost, honestly, is some kind of faith. And it doesn't matter whether it's faith in God, faith in medicine, faith in doctors, faith in Allah, faith in you know Krishna, faith in Yehovah. It doesn't matter who the faith is in. It's just that there's something bigger than them. Mm -hmm. And so those agnostics that don't believe in any kind of, you know, sort of typical God, um, may have great faith in their doctors or great faith in their pharma, you know, their medicine. And that's okay as long as there's something bigger than them. That's one of them. 
Um, the other, another factor is, and I'm gonna look back here just to get them all in order, but um, another factor is curiosity, lifelong learning in terms of the brain. You know, how, how much does that person use their brain? And it doesn't mean formal education. It means how much did they, how much were they curious? How much were they willing to take risks for doing certain things? Because, you know, looking at long-term recovery, you're going to push yourself into areas that are challenging for you. And if, if you're, you know, if you're one of the kinds of people that says, here, try this, and then they, can't, they do it one time and they can't do it, that's not such a, a great, um, you know, outcome. Another is, hold on, let me get it. I, sh I should know it by heart, but of course I'm talking to you. Let's see, the secret sauce of recovery, 40s. Um, I love that saying, um, the severity doesn't predict outcome. It really doesn't. That's something I think so many caregivers need to hear. Um, and it doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be 100% restored to pre-incident or injury or illness, but it does mean that it that the severity doesn't dictate what your what your family looks like, what your relationship looks like, or what the care recipient's going to be like. And there's another component to that too, and I agree that recovery. When I talk about getting your life back, it doesn't necessarily mean getting your life back as it was but it's finding meaning in your life, finding the ability to contribute, finding a reason to wake up in the morning. And many of my patients in the absence of full recovery have those things. Mm -hmm. um, I just recently, my husband shared that with me and I didn't realize that I never, he was, he had encephalitis years ago, 1993. And he was from his job, he was permanently disabled. He had a very, high functioning job. This is in, it was called an, an excess and surplus lines insurance broker in downtown Manhattan. And from the encephalitis, he, he could never come back to that level. But he shared with me not too long ago, and I put it on, I podcasted with him about it. Um, and he calls it continuing on. It's getting up every day and continuing on is, and you know, we could talk more about that, but that's not what we're here for today. But it just brings to mind that that's what got him. He is very faithful, but it was really the idea every day that he had to get up and continue on because he had another day that was given to him. And that's one of the other ones, persistence, gratitude, humor, persistence, and acceptance. Those are the secret sauces to recovering. And whether you, they recover exactly as they were, you know, none of us is stagnant. In our life, we change all the time. And so that ability to change and find the meaning, the contribution, the reason to get up in whatever condition you're in is really the secret sauce of recovering. So then we can transition that to the caregiver as well, to embracing those same qualities, those same ideas of having gratitude and um, being hopeful, having faith in something to avoid the burnout, right? Because it's one of, after a stroke for some caregivers, it must be very intense. It is very intense. So they're thrown into this catastrophic event without the language, without the skill, without the knowledge of, you know, what to do at all. 
You know, one of my book is divided into three chapters. What happened? <laughs> what now? And what next? Because that is really, those are the big questions that caregivers are asking. In my book, I, each chapter is designated for caregiver survivor by a C or an S. And so I decided to look through it today and count how many chapters were for a caregiver. And in fact, all 29 were. <laughs> because the, you know, this is a dance, really. And it starts with the caregiver leading the dance. Hopefully, ultimately, the survivor is going to take on more of those skills and independence. That's really everybody's intention. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to transition the caregiver from being a lifelong caregiver to having that survivor take more of those responsibilities that that survivor can do. Um, so absolutely. And in fact, I, I'm working on the companion guide right now to the book. And the companion journal is a workbook specifically for caregivers. And one of the first things that it's going to start with is a caregiver pledge. You know, we get up and we do a pledge. And can I read that Pledge of Allegiance to you? Sure. And then, and then when you do that, we're going to take a quick break. And Jen's going to come in, too, because I know she has questions for you. Okay, great. Do you want me to read that now? Yes, that'd be great. I pledge allegiance to myself. I pledge to honor my needs for sleep, water, nourishment, and peace of mind. I pledge to care for myself because I am worthy. I pledge to first care for myself because only then can I serve others. Today, I pledge to look for small wins. I pledge to take breaks and breathe mindfully. I pledge to acknowledge and appreciate myself, not in spite of my circumstances, but because of them. I love that. That is so spot on. Okay, well, let's take, we'll take a quick break and then we'll, we'll bring Jen in. Perfect. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. Talk to your doctor about creating a plan that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Jen, what'd you think? I lost it for a second there. What'd you think? I'm, I'm so impacted by the caregiver pledge and I could, I was picturing that and trying to apply it to myself. And also at the same time, I was thinking about how, how well you have made that pledge to yourself and what a great mentor you are to me for really living and embodying so much of that. And, um, I, I want to, I want to bottle that and listen to it every morning when I wake up because it's so um, important. It really is the, is the best word that I can use to describe it. Um, it took me a long time to figure out that I needed to take care of myself before worrying about taking care of other people. And it's still a real struggle. And I think um, to give Sagoina a little background and our listeners a little background, I don't often talk about my mother. Most of our listeners know that I take care of my brother who, um, although he did not have a stroke, he did suffer a brain injury and had a lot of, um, a lot of after effects that folks with strokes have. So his, he had speech impairment. Um, he went through years of speech therapy, which helped him immensely. I cannot stress enough how much that helped him 
And just listening to some of the things that you have to say and, and some of the, some of the material in your book really reinforces what we did to help my brother get there. You know, people will say, well, why is he in speech therapy? What does that even do? And, and wouldn't, why does he do puzzles in speech therapy or why are they working on um, lists in speech therapy? And all of those things were so important for him to put, put his life sort of back together in order for himself. And another really important part of my brother's recovery was having a life coach. And a lot of people don't understand what a life coach really does. But for me as the caregiver, it took the burden off of me from being the cheerleader 24 7 365 and gave me a break from that so that I could refill my hope and uh, and find some things for myself while another person was responsible for helping my brother with his goals and executing those and um, I just can't say enough um, he received support from neuro community care through a program at Wounded Warrior Project. And I'm going to give them a little shout out here because they really have set the standard for long-term care and really have never said that my brother was in a plateau. They've never, never once said that he didn't have more room for growth, more room for um, goal setting. And that's quite different from my experience with my mother. So 13 years ago, my mother suffered a stroke and it became apparent immediately that she had some severe effects. She had aphasia. And one of the things that I know that you have a lot of experience with is aphasia. And my mother is um, anomic. And what that means is that she says a lot of words and none of them mean anything to my ears. To her, they mean everything that she intends. But to me, it's like she speaks another language and I have no possibility. There's no book. There's no translator. And um, I really almost no one can understand my mother. Um, she's not, she can't sit down and write out a letter. She has learned to sign her name. But um, for six months after her stroke, the only word that she said was me. And then through some assistive technology and some some therapy, speech therapies, my mom is able to learn about 150 words, but she can't form sentences um, or even put groups, two words together to make a phrase. So um, I was really unaware until I started preparing for our episode today that there are 2 million Americans that have aphasia. So I'm just thinking if everyone has four or five loved ones in their life, you know, that's 10, 12 million Americans that are affected by aphasia. And since it's June is Aphasia Awareness Month, I'm wondering maybe what thoughts that you have um, for, for people that don't know what aphasia is. Maybe you could explain that. Sure. Um, aphasia is a loss of language, essentially. And, uh, you know, A, meaning without aphasia, without language. And aphasia has many different components. There is not just, again, one size or one aspect of it. So it can go from very, very severe um, to very mild. And in fact, in my book, I have the types and the severity of aphasia from the least of severe, which is typically an anomic aphasia where there's word finding difficulties to Wernicke's aphasia, which is where there's more of this word salad or this gibberish or made up words, jargon words. Yeah. That's what my mom does. And yeah, that's what your mom does. Yeah. And um, it's really hard to explain to people when they don't know what it is. And 
they see it as a mental illness and it You're right. isn't. You're right. A lot of times these kinds of patients, it's interesting, depending on the severity, these kinds of patients can be really misdiagnosed in the hospital when there's a brief conversation because some types of Wernicke's aphasia, they may have intact articulation so they can pronounce their words, their intact rhythm and tone and prosody, and they may even have some automatic speech. So somebody might say to them, how are you doing today, Miss Smith? And they'll go, fine, everything's good. And they've got the right facial expressions. And then you go a little further, and then they'll say, the fleeber jab left the lepophrobimus on the skibit matavishes. And you go, what? So they're often, con so if they don't get misdiagnosed as being okay and normal, right? Because somebody's had a very brief conversation with them with automatic speech, they may then be looked at as psychotic. They may be looked at as drunk, some other kind of mental disorder. It's very challenging. Um, another type of aphasia is that where there's sparse or limited speech, it's, it's called a mixed non-fluent aphasia, um, where they, again, can't think of single words, they can't put together a sentence. Um, Broca's aphasia is a non-fluent aphasia where there's very short utterances, less than four words, mm. and comprehension and reading may be intact, but there's limited writing. So does your, is your mother able to read? Um, she can read, but she can't write. And right. so it's, she, I know that she's fully aware of so many things, but she cannot express right. her feelings, her concerns. So she, she would be, questions. oh, sorry. No, it's okay. She would be typically a, a great kind of candidate if she could use the technology for communication device. Because if she can read, she can search, she can find something to express her needs. And so, right, we have reading, writing, and speaking, and understanding as all part of this communication dynamic. And there's so much variety that people have. And for the caregivers, I have to say, it's really frustrating, not only because you can't help them with all of those things. There's some things that you just can't do with folks that have aphasia or who have um, paralysis from stroke. I mean, they're we, I don't ever want anybody to feel like they're in a plateau, um, but there are limitations. And, and one of those limitations is not being able to communicate your feelings, not being able to, to say, I love you, or I'm sorry, or to apologize is a really big thing, but, and, and to express love is another. And so um, I know there are a lot of caregivers that struggle with that. And I wonder maybe um, what, what ideas or techniques techniques do you offer them if they're feeling frustrated by their loved one's inability to express in that way? For the caregiver? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, there's some things that you can check out. So people often say, I can't communicate at all. And I want to point out that they have skills, actually. Um, most people or many people have had children or they've dealt with children or seen a pantomime. And the truth is that we have more skill than we think we have. Uh, I'm not saying that it's easy, but we have to learn to observe the nonverbal communication, the tone and the intention, the events that either preceded it or surrounded the thing. So it helps us kind of hone in on an area, right? We've watched a pantomime where we had no idea what the topic was going to be, and we com completely understood a story. 
That doesn't mean that a person with aphasia is going to be able to do a really great pantomime. That is often another area that is impaired. So how do we look? Well, number one, first, first go in with the mindset that you are willing to understand. And I think that is, you know, a simple and very often dismissed. I'm not saying it's easy, but I do want to say it's a simple thing. And, you know, simplicity is so often dismissed as like, well, you know, that's so simple. Why would that work? Well, <laughs> you know, common sense is not often common practice. And this kind of falls into that category. So number one, go in with the intention that you want to. And, and, and I say that because so often our knee-jerk reaction is, this is frustrating and I'm just not going to understand. Yeah, so, and I think that causes people to visit less, to, to co converse less, and especially during this time of COVID, it's so challenging. And so one thing I've been trying to do before or when or during co communication with my mom, because it's frustrating for her too, is something that Mary taught me. Um, she puts her hand over her heart and she just shows herself a little bit of love and a little bit of kindness and she'll say, there, there, now, now. And I have to tell you, doing that has been so transformative when I'm in a stressful situation because I think it slows down my heart rate a little bit. I think it stops me from releasing all that cortisol and it reminds me that I'm in control of my feelings and this may be frustrating, but it doesn't have to dictate the whole rest of my day. And so I want to give a shout out to Mayor for that technique, but the, you know, that's a common sense thing. It is. And it's a fantastic, simple thing that does make a huge difference. Um, you know, those gestures make a big difference too. And when you're talking about um, showing, so I worked with a guy that he was so severely aphasic, there wasn't a single sound he made that even sounded like, like English. He sounded like an alien. He made sounds that I'd never heard. But he also had some gestures and he would show gratitude. He would tip his head. He was paralyzed on one side. He would tip his head and you would see in that moment of time that that was a way that he expressed his feeling, mm -hmm. encouraging a loved one to find some gesture that they might be able to accomplish, whether it's a wink or a nod or a hand over their heart that shows their expression of feeling as well. Um, even this, if they want to show that they disagree, right? You know, because in some of the goal things, like part of the communication is, yeah, you want to share your opinions. You want to express yourself. You want to say what's great and what's not great. Um, you know, so that is a, a tool of using a gestural system. Sometimes there are people that do best if they can draw. Mm -hmm. Even some kind of little stick figure that puts you in the ballpark and then you can use those questions to see and narrow down. Well, for our caregivers who are listening, some techniques that have worked for my mother and I are um, having her cut pictures out of magazines um, and also having a, um, a, a board, a, a piece of cardboard where we tape those pictures that she seems to be pulling out frequently and then she can use those with her healthcare workers with um, friends and loved ones and that's that's really been as helpful as anything just to give her those 
those easy to access um, signs and signals that she can rely on. Now, one of the things that I did um, after my mom had her stroke and I realized that I was going to need to be her guardian and be responsible for her was I immersed myself in research. I, I've done that a lot as a caregiver. I did the same thing with my brother. Um, for me, having knowledge gives me some security. It makes me feel like I have a little bit of control in a situation that I didn't cause or control. And um, I'm wondering though, do you see a lot of caregivers get overwhelmed by doing research? And what advice do you have to them about doing research and overwhelming yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I actually wrote this book as well, because there wasn't a, a single source to go to, to get really all the information that they would need from going into the hospital, understanding that medical terminology, which can be overwhelming as it is, where you have to make all kinds of decisions um, and then knowing at each stage of the game where to go. So that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book. And I think caregivers can, um, if, if they are inclined to research information, there are a couple of great sites to go to. Okay. The, the Stroke Association is a great site. Um, and the, the National Aphasia Association are both great sites. There happens to be a Stroke Association in Australia called Enable Me. And I love their website. I think their website is phenomenal because they also have an aphasia-friendly version of that website, oh. which simplifies language. Mm -hmm. And there are caregiver stories in there. And that's probably one of the most comprehensive ones that I've seen. Um, my book looks at so many of those questions that caregivers ask, like directly. And I put them up front in the beginning, you know, why does my loved one sound like they're drunk? What can they eat? When will they be able to move their arm? Um, when will they be able to drive? All those things, questions about sex, you know, like there's, there's not a single place that you don't have to go through all these different research and who has time? For that. Yeah. Wow, you That's don't have one thing we hear from our caregivers is I just don't have time to do all this. I'm so thankful that you wrote this book and that you came on our show to talk about it. And you've shared so many resources. We're gonna put those in the show notes. So if you didn't have time to write them down, you're driving, listening to our podcast, or you're cooking dinner, don't worry. They're in our show notes, so you can find them all. Um, how can how can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, that's great. Um, so they can reach me at hope afterstrokenow at gmail.com. That's my email address. My website, just as of yesterday, is undergoing some refreshment so that I can add some new content and some great stuff. Um, the exciting news is that my book is also out on audiobook now, Yay. and it's on many different sites. Um, it just finally made it to Amazon Audible. So if you have a subscription there, you can download it. Um, it's on Chirp. It's on Google Play. It's on um, Apple Play. And, and that's a great resource for caregivers because, as you know, they can be driving and listening to the book. They can be walking and listening to the book. And um, the resources are there, too. It'll link them to resources. That's one of the great things in the back of the book is that there are so many resources available for you know further exploration. And I, I clue that I label them as things that make life easier. 
Like my whole intention is how can I make you feel smarter, more empowered, and more a part of your recovery so that your life is better and easier. So I have a quick question is um, for your section for caregivers, is that, do you think that caregivers who are caring for somebody who hasn't had a stroke, but has had a TBI or I don't know, some other intense situation, is it helpful to them as well? It's really great that you asked that. And that's the feedback that I've gotten from so many people who said, this book isn't just about stroke. It's about like living life. And the thing is that I am also a life coach. So I've written it through the lens of a life coach. And the bottom line is we are people first and foremost. So we should be entitled to the best practices that anybody living their most epic best life should have their rituals of morning gratitude, their focus and their mindfulness, you know, breathing, getting sleep, getting the proper water. These are all foundational aspects for everyone. Well, I'm excited to read it. So that's going to be next on my reading list. Yay. I appreciate you so much for being a guest on our show today. We've really enjoyed having you. And I know that our caregivers are going to get so much out of listening to what you've had to share and I think you have a ton more to share. We could probably do hours of a podcast with you. So I hope you'll come back. At oh, I'd love time. to. We really appreciate you and all you do for, um, for all the other humans out there, people who, are, who have had strokes and their caregivers and family members and loved ones. Um, and so we, we do look forward to, to having you on again. Um, so Jennifer has how to contact you. How to contact us would be at thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com. Uh, caregiver at something for Twitter. And Twitter, we're just this caregiver. Because we want to, you know, we want to keep it short and sweet. Keep it short and sweet. And we have an Instagram, um, this caregiver life on Instagram. Um, you some, you could leave us a message um, on our, you could send us an audio and we'll play it. And um, so Gwen, you left us a beautiful review. We Thank really you. appreciate that. We'd appreciate other reviews by people and um, give us a shout out and let us know what you want to hear. And Well, it was a duly deserved review because I think you do really keep it real. Um, I think that you offer your listeners such solid advice and um, companionship and, and, and just that support that they need so desperately. I have nothing but awe for caregivers. Um, I, I really do. You, you, you know, you have, you are in it. You are in it. And um, I think it's fantastic. So thank I you. I often say it's the best job. I hope nobody ever has. But if you, if you do, I hope you have friends like Mayor and experts like you who uh, give you support and encouragement when you need it. Well, I feel the same. I don't know where I'd be without Jen. So all righty then. Till the next episode, we'll, right. we'll, we'll see everybody then. Stay, Stay safe, safe, everybody. Thank Until you so much. Time.